Okay, well, so Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, so we wanted to try and be really strict about time because we wanted to finish before um, iftar in case uh, you know people have other commitments. So we'll just get started. And so I know this is a real challenge for us to make sure that we can quit. So, but we've got enough people here to help us stop. So we're not going to do Q and A either if we run out of time. So we'll yeah. just yeah. So anyway, um, but anyway, I hope it's it's so wonderful to see you. We miss being with you in our space. But this is this is fine. I'm just I'm grateful to be able to connect in whatever way possible. Um, and I hope that you guys, I, I know, hopefully you've been checking in with us at least on um, Fridays for our weekly virtual chutbahs. And, um, you know, hopefully that has been kind of a nice source. I mean, I know for me, it's been a really nice source of just reconnection and, you know, a little bit of structure and a little bit of continuity in these like completely upside down times where literally like I have no idea what day it is. And I know it's like you blink and it's a week has passed. feels like it's always Friday. It's always bedtime. Always, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day where you're just like kind of reliving the same day over and over again. Um, but on a, on a happy note, so um, big news since last time, Mito turned 15. So Mito is a little deeper into um, teenage life, but alhamdulillah. So we were able to pull him off the video games for about half an hour and have a cake and, uh, you know, have a little bit of family time. And then we all went back to doing what we normally do. So, um, but it's, it's been really nice because, you know, we all kind of have our own projects and we're busy doing our own thing, but it's just really nice to all be kind of together under one roof. So it's definitely a huge blessing for the pandemic to have, you know, everyone together. Oh, my God, I've been talking without his ears. Okay, well, that was the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> we, we should mute it from our side, right? Okay, yeah, that's fine. Oh, my God. Yes, please. Can you hear me okay? Okay, so that was a demonstration of fasting brain. <laughs> <laughs> which I have a really bad case of. So uh, my next thing on my on my list of things to say is that not, not as much has changed, unfortunately, on the hearing front, and that the professor still is, you know, where um, not able to hear except through this little pocket talker. So um, thank God. Well, somebody. <laughs> so I was starting my talk and like leaving the station without him. So. Um, but alhamdulillah, I mean, I think that people have been able to tell from the khutbahs that it's really impossible to know that there's any difference because they're really, you know, the, the khutbahs have been extremely powerful. And on that note, we got this really great news um, that there was someone who had been um, doing, a, a, did an article, published an article about um, Friday congregational prayers um, live streamed around the world. And then they identified the Suli Institute and, and the professor as being the most significant among them. So we were really excited about that. And then also in that same uh, website, it's the Religion and Ethics website, um, ABC for Australian Biz uh, Broadcasting Channel or Corporation, something like that. Um, they also um, published a summary of the chutbah from last week for Ramadan, which is really cool. So um, we can, you can guys can check that out online. So, and it was actually, I was really happy that they noted that we had been um, doing these virtual, you know, chutbahs for a year before the pandemic hit. So that actually, you know, made me very proud. And, uh, you know, we've been covering a lot of ground since then. So alhamdulillah for that. But so, you know, it's, it's always interesting to um, see how, I guess, people have been adjusting to pandemic mode and, you know, how everything, how the world has changed. I mean, for, for my first month, I definitely was like, maybe not the first month, but for the first couple of weeks, I was just completely obsessed with the news and the counts of how many people have died and, you know, the state of the world. And it was just very intense. 
And it was getting to the point where I felt like I was always on sort of this fight or flight mode. And it was getting to the point where it was just really not healthy to do that. So I definitely scaled back on my, my news intake. Um, and then um, when I sort of started to calm down, then I became very curious about how everything has sort of changed and moved online and how we sort of all very readily accepted this sort of new medium of communication and connecting with people. And um, I mean, to say it's, it's always, I mean, one of the things that I find the most interesting is just to see like what's in the background of how people live, right? You want to see like what they've got behind them. And um, it's like been sort of fascinating because sometimes people make a point of sitting in front of their bookcases. And so I always pause it and I like look at the bookcases to see if I recognize any books. And especially if it's someone Islamic, I'm like looking for the professor's books. But um, you know, but it's sort of fascinating to see like what people have in the background, if they have artwork or furniture or lamps or whatever. And even, you know, I've noticed like rich people set their, you know, the angle so you can see like the expanse of the house behind them, you know, or um, or some people just have like absolutely like nothing like a blank wall or, you know, or obviously some people don't even pay attention to what is in the background. But it's just sort of like um, interesting because it's like we are um, we're all sort of now on the same level playing field, right? We're all just sort of faces on a screen or boxes of faces on a screen. And an interesting example of sort of the impact of this new way of communication is partly um, I've noticed through even late night comedy. So like before the pandemic, I, you know, my favorites were Stephen Colbert and then Seth Meyers um, and then sometimes Trevor Noah, like in that order. And then they all moved to pandemic mode. So, you know, now they're all at home and they have, you know, different things going on. But, you know, I'm sure that it's affected them in every way, aside from sort of like, you know, their studio being home. But I think their writers, you know, I'm sure are affected to a certain point. And it's hard to tell a joke and have to kind of wait for that gap of time when people are supposed to be laughing and how you handle that. So all of those things kind of add up. And I noticed that since pandemic mode, my preferences have actually changed. So my number one is Seth Meyers. And then a close second um, would be kind of Colbert and Trevor Noah Tide. But, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say which one I, I prefer. But and the reason is because I found that like Seth Meyer, his he his content is better. So I don't know if he's writing his own material or other, you know, or maybe his best writers are writing his material. But and also his delivery is much better. It's like faster and he's not as phased by that gap of silence. And so and, and noticeably, you know, it makes a difference. Um, Trevor Noah, um, which who I always thought was very sort of like popularized and kind of like gross at times, like very sexualized in his content. I've noticed he's actually become he's still sexualized. So that's why he's not at, you know, in a clear number two position, but he um, he's smarter and you kind of learn more about him as a person. I think he feels he's just it feels different. And Colbert, you feel like I mean, I love him as a person, but I feel like his material and his delivery was much better suited for a live audience. And I feel like he hasn't made the transition as well to the pandemic, you know, um, situation. So that was really interesting. And so why do I bring this up? Um, because it's, you know, I mean, I think that we are in this sort of new Zoom, Skype, Google Meet kind of world, um, and we don't really know how long it's going to last. I mean, some people are saying the pandemic um, is going to go on for another couple of years. And I know we are definitely not in any hurry to leave the house until there's a vaccine and, you know, things and testing and things are just in better order. Um, but so with our new reality, I think it's really important um, for us to think about how do we use this new medium and how do we you know, communicate effectively and especially as Muslims? Because I mean, everything now has gone online 
And I've definitely, you know, increased, as I think most people have, um, you know, in taking social media and watching online conferences and people talking and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's like most of the time I'm just very like click around, you know, it, it like it has to capture your attention. And um, so it's got me thinking about, okay, well, you know, what really does make a difference? Assalamu alaikum. Um, and yeah, please silence your, your thingy. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because I'm a, a little bit of a marketer by training too, but, you know, it's like I, I feel like, you know, we have to start thinking out of the box, especially as Muslims. Um, hang on one second. So I'm going to just adjust this a little bit. I can't, I don't know, I can't adjust the screen, but anyway, all right, I'm going to leave that as that. So, um, you know, and naturally I've been thinking about, um, you know, what does this mean in terms of what we are doing at Suli, and how do we make our content, um, you know, and our delivery and all of that more more interesting and, and more attention grabbing. Um, like the only, like for all of the things literally that I have watched, um, the thing that um, the, there's literally been one thing that I've watched from start to finish, and it was good enough that I actually watched it over and over again at different points. And it was a conversation that was hosted by CARE um, for young Muslims. And it was a conversation between Linda Sarsour and Zahra Bilou, who is the executive director um, of the San Francisco Bay Area chapter. And they were talking about racism and COVID-19. So this was on April 21st. If you're interested in seeing that conversation, you could find it, I'm sure. Um, definitely on their Facebook page, it's there. Um, and, you know, it was supposed to be geared for a younger audience, but I was really, like, captivated and drawn in. And, you know, I recognize thinking about it, it's because these two women are, you know, extremely knowledgeable and extremely experienced, but they're also very good speakers. The things that they were talking about um, were really, you know, like, true to the reality on the ground and what was going on. It was smart. It was riveting. You know, they were bringing up really important things to think about. And so they were trying to definitely advise like a younger audience um, how to operate in, you know, in this world and how to kind of stand up for justice and organize for causes and things like that. But I felt that it was just such valuable content that I was riveted. And um, it didn't matter. Like actually Zahra's background was like complete nothing. She was like sitting in front of a wall. I think maybe one was like slightly a different color than the other. And then Linda Sarsour, I think, was sitting maybe in her kitchen or something like that. So there was nothing remarkable about their background. And it just didn't matter because the content um, was so good and the delivery was so good. And, you know, in contrast, I've definitely seen a lot of people who are online and it just feels like they're just happy to be recorded and they're just happy to be there and ramble and kind of say whatever they feel like saying. And you know, you can only really stand so much of that. It's almost like they're not really thinking about their audience or they're not thinking that the people that are watching them might be very intelligent and you know, very engaged um, or want to be engaged. And so you know, it's, it just doesn't capture your attention. Um, so you know, I, I take a lot of that into consideration like when I'm also preparing for my talks. Like I, it's really important to me. I mean, one of the things that is very painful that I do um, is I, I make a point to watch back like my talks. And you know, it's like you hate hearing yourself speak, you hate like kind of seeing yourself talk, but it's extremely instructive for seeing you know, how, you, how you present yourself and what people are seeing when they're listening to you. And, um, and you can definitely improve by that exercise. Um, and you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and preparing about my talks, what, you know, thinking about what I wanna say, trying to think about you know, things that might be thought provoking or different. 
and I usually stay up really night, late the night before, like writing everything out and you know preparing. And I, you know maybe other people don't really need to do that, but but I feel like I'm not really comfortable unless I've sort of laid everything out and I know what I want to talk about and have things that you know come to my mind. So I'm not just sort of on screen going, uh, uh, you know, which I see unfortunately a lot of people do. And I just you know just food for thought, you know I. I I'm, you know, often thinking about how can we as Muslims make a difference, right? I mean, because how can we stand out? And especially, I think that if you are doing anything Islamic, by definition, you are working on God's behalf, and that that work deserves your best effort and your best preparation. Um, and I think it's a way for us as Muslims to stand out. You know, why should our talks not be the most intelligent, the most thought-provoking, the most interesting, you know, the most spiritually profound? Um, and I mean, I know that a lot, it's not just Muslims that get on and start, you know, like rambling or whatever, it's everybody. But this is an opportunity for us to kind of think about, um, you know, how can we be better? And, you know, maybe it's a way that we can make a difference. Um, and along those lines, you know, I started thinking about, well, okay, so what does make things more interesting, especially in an online vehicle? And I think one of the um, really powerful things, especially for Muslims, is storytelling. And I mean, storytelling has always been, of course, a very powerful tool in any medium. But when we are all sort of flat screened, it's especially important. And, um, you know, an example of that for, is uh, yesterday, um, the professor gave an incredible khutbah. Um, it was um, one of our longest khutbahs. It was actually like an hour and 11 minutes, but it didn't feel like that because he spent the first khutbah telling us a story. And he's an incredible storyteller, so I really encourage people to watch it if you haven't seen it. But he was telling a story about um, the Prophet and Bilal, who was one of the first Muslims, and kind of the ethic um, of, you know, of the time. But there were so many details, so much richness to the story, so much context that you had to understand. But telling it in a story, it was like, you know, he, he like grabbed my attention and held, held it and then took me through the story and like it didn't even feel like it was work. But by the time we were done, I had learned so much and had such an incredible learning experience. And so it made me feel like, you know, this is something that we really need to focus on, especially as Muslims and especially because storytelling does such an important job of humanizing, um, humanizing us. And we definitely as Muslims need to be more humanized. Um, and, you know, here I, I try oftentimes um, in, in my talks to also tell stories because I feel like um, there's a humanizing aspect to that. You, know, you kind of have, have more skin in the game when you're telling a story about yourself and you personalize um, what you're, you're talking about. Um, I, I've seen like too many Muslim speakers kind of um, revert into that, you know, let me lecture you, you know, and say, Islam believes this, Muslims believe that. Islam is about blah, blah, blah. And pretty much you're, you're sort of objectifying and speaking kind of on behalf of God when you may not be a scholar or you may not be someone, you know, who needs to speak on behalf of Islam or God. But when, you know, when you can tell a story about, you know, well, let me share with you something that I struggled with and here's how I dealt with it. It becomes a more um, humanizing and connecting experience um, that I think um, people find relatable and, and definitely more interesting. So it's just sort of food for thought for that. And, you know, like I, so kind of taking all of that into consideration, um, 
the pandemic and Ramadan and this, you know, new way of communication and storytelling and trying to figure out, you know, how do you make a difference and how do you stand out in this sort of new world? Um, you know, I, I personally was really like trying to think of something special that I wanted to do for Ramadan. And I think most people know if, if you follow me online or, or follow us on Facebook and stuff like that, that what I decided I really wanted to do was, um, you know, share actually my favorite book, which is um, The Search for Beauty in Islam, um, a conference of the books. And what I wanted to do was just take um, a chapter a night during Ramadan and share it. So, you know, like right now, I mean, it's hard for people to read, but um, I feel like now with, you know, the pandemic, people have more time. And this book is very special if you don't know it. It's, um, it's about 62 chapters. Oh, sorry, this one is 85 chapters. Um, this, they're short chapters and each chapter is its own story. Um, and it's basically, um, our life a bit. <laughs> it's the, the professor wrote this um, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And he, it originally started as um, chapters that were published individually in a, in a magazine called the Minaret Magazine. And it was a publication of the Islamic Center of Southern California. So yes, that is the same mosque that banned him last year because he you know, wanted to honor Mohammed Morsi after he was killed. So you know, we, we go way back with, with that mosque. Um, but so he used to publish this book or this, these articles and it was um, again back in the in the 90s um, and you know this is how a lot of people were sort of first introduced to a lot of the professor's writings and um, you know the I've mentioned this book a lot before but it really um, takes place in our library at the Suli Institute right so that's our, our private library um, with probably like a million books. Um, the number is actually a mystery because we don't really know, but, um, but it's, the, the premise is that the professor would um, retreat at night into the library and have these conversations with, intel, you know, with Islamic jurists from our past. And the idea that each book is a jurist that's preserved in time. And he would engage the different jurists um, on whatever problem was at hand. But it was a really powerful way to storytell and teach us about our tradition and introduce us to our scholars and, and engage in the way that a jurist thinks about beauty and God and seeking the divine and how to solve problems that confront us in, in our modern life. And it's a, it's a magical, magical book. And it's a book that, um, you know, when, when we first met um, back in 1995, um, actually before we got married, he shared with me the very first chapter from it, which is called Conference of the Books, the first, um, a, a first admission, the first admission. And so in many ways, it's a really special book for me personally, because it like was, it marked the beginning of our journey together. And all of the chapters that he wrote were written in our first 10 years together. So it's very fascinating because I would read them, you know, as they were born. And we kind of say that it was a birthing process. So each chapter is literally born and it's like giving birth, you know, the pain of like writing a chapter. Um, but I, I read them as they were born, as they came out. And, you know, interestingly, so this was very early in my journey because I was a really young Muslim. I had not been a Muslim for more than, you know, for almost not even two years. Um, and. So when I read them then, they had a very different impact because I just didn't know very much and I definitely you know, was not mature enough at that point to appreciate the full wisdom of a lot of these chapters. And um, you know, so the first, the first volume, just to give you a little bit of history, 
um, was published in 2001. And what we had done is sort of collected, um, I, I don't know exactly how many, but probably about you know, 50, give or take, chapters that had been published in the Minaret. And the professor wrote some additional chapters. And then we, we published the first um, edition as a collection of 62 chapters. And this book has a whole history in and of itself. It's really fascinating. Um, I remember you know, I put together a proposal and tried to send it around. And none of the Muslim publishers were interested whatsoever. And um, so we ended up um, choosing a little academic imprint, part of um, Roman and Littlefield, and it specialized in publishing books that they recognized were of high academic or you know um, scholarly value, um, but that might not be as marketable. Like it's not the not the type of books that you would publish because you're expecting to sell a whole bunch, but books that are of you know high quality that they deserve to be published and shared. So we kind of knew that it would be a limited audience and that we might have to do you know, a lot on our end to do the marketing. And you know, we actually had to do a lot of the, the legwork and groundwork ourselves you know, in terms of like designing the cover and all these sorts of things. But we, we got it published. And it came out in 2001, which as you remember is the same year as 9-11. Um, and after that, then um, I think the dynamic of our world changed so much as Muslims. Um, the professor continued to write these chapters, and he wrote another 22 chapters, which then um, we collected and added to the first edition. And then we published the second book, the second edition, which is this one, um, with a total of 85 chapters. And it also has an amazing like glossary in the background and, um, and also some descriptions of scholars from our past. So it's a really beautiful and valuable book. Um, but so this, this book, you know, has, um, has lived quite a life on its own without a lot of marketing. It's, you know, definitely um, been past word, word of mouth. Um, and we've received so many um, messages from people at all different times that this book is what brought them back to Islam or brought them back to their faith, um, or that this was a book that captured the beauty of Islam that they always knew existed in their hearts, but, you know, were so shocked to find it you know, written or presented by a scholar. I mean, it's so, it's a, it's a really unusual work. And it was a really important work that I, you know, I wanted to share. Um, and the interesting thing is that oftentimes, because each of the chapters are um, short and, you know, can easily be read, and um, they, they as, a, as a matter of that, they don't need to be read in any order. Um, so oftentimes, we would hear about people who were reading the book, they would just leave it, you know, on their bed, bed stand. And right before going to bed, they would like randomly flip it open and read whatever chapter appeared. And we would hear from people that that actually was magical too because sometimes the chapter that they read coincided with some issue that they were dealing with or struggling with or thinking about. And so there was definitely a feeling of like this divine intervention. And I know a lot of times people read the Quran that way too where they kind of open it up and, and then it kind of speaks to them. And sometimes they're really surprised by what they find. So I wanted to do that also for sharing you know, a chapter a night during Ramadan, because I thought, you know what, I, I really do believe that God speaks to us in different ways. And when I open a chapter, you know, I'm gonna pray every time I do it. You know, I always say Bismillah, and, you know, and I say Al-Fatiha. And I pray that whichever chapter is being shared will be valuable to someone who is going to be reading that. And um, it's been a, a really incredible experience. I mean, there, and, I, and I try not to second guess it too. There have been times where like I flip it 
And I go, really? This one? And I'm like, oh, no, maybe I should, you know, like flip it again. I don't really, you know, and I, no, 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 no. We have to trust the process because obviously God picked this one for a certain reason. And subhanAllah, so now we are on, tonight will be the 10th chapter that we have shared. And, um, and you know, I, so I just wanted to kind of give a little bit, you know, tell a little bit more, a few more stories, I guess, about, about this. So I've shared with you now a little bit of the history of the book. Um, and the, I think the thing that is also the most striking to me is that even though these chapters were written in the, you know, the 90s and early 2000s, like when I read them now, like it's been, you know, like almost 15, 20 years since I read these book, read this book. And life was so quick before, I mean, it was so fast before the pandemic. I would always see the book and I'd be like, oh, I really need to read it again. And I just never did because it was just, I was always, you know, too occupied with other things. And so I'm really grateful for the pandemic and Ramadan as a chance to reread these chapters. And it's, a, it's like reading them, you know, for the first time. Um, because I now, you know, so many years have passed. I've learned a lot more. Um, alhamdulillah, I think I've matured. <laughs> I recognize that this, the wisdom that I'm reading is just mind-blowing. So I, um, I just wanted to share uh, just a couple of things. I mean, I, when I post them on Facebook, um, what, I, what I do is, you know, well, we have a website called Search for Beauty, and there's a page there that's dedicated to this book in particular. So if you go to like the searchforbeauty.org and you go to the right-hand nav, there's a section called books. And when you click on books, then there's a list of um, different books and you can click on search for beauty and you land on a page that has the table of contents of all the chapters. And you'll see that there are certain chapters that have open links. So if you click on them, they'll take you to the full chapter. So as I choose a chapter, I will make it available online. So hopefully by the end of the month, then we will have, you know, like a good number of chapters that people can access without having to pay for the book. Because unfortunately, the book is expensive. And I noticed when I looked it up online that it's more expensive than I remember. So I think they hiked the price. So this book now, which is paperback, is I think like $51. And at one point, it was like closer to $30, maybe somewhere in the 20s. And I really, you know, don't want um, price to be an obstacle for people to have access to this. So, um, you know, anyway, but just, just to kind of show you what I do, like oftentimes I'll, I will like pray Osir and ask God, please help me pick the right chapter. And I close my eyes and I like, I'm trying really hard to flip the book and flip the pages. And I'm like, you know, second guessing myself and going, oh my God, I'm so nervous. And then boom. And it always opens like very, with a lot of certainty to a chapter. Um, and that's kind of how, how I get there. So just to kind of share with you um, the, ten, the, first, the first chapters that were revealed, you know, like when I kind of look back on this first week or so that we've been doing this, it's amazing to see which chapters were revealed. And in, in my thinking, I can sort of see like why these were done in this order. Um, and so the first chapter was chapter 30 called Longing for Brotherhood. And it was a chapter where the, the professor was telling a lot of stories about when he was younger um, and he was filled with dreams of reviving, you know, the Islamic uh, message and felt that, you know, America was kind of the new possibility for the rebirth of this beautiful Islam and how he and his brothers at the time, um, you know, brothers in, in faith, 
would often go hang out at Denny's at night and talk about their dreams and all the things that they could do. And so it was really connected to, you know, the Islamic Center of Southern California and um, all of these ideas of how to change the world. But he wrote about, you know, what that sense of brotherhood was and what it meant and kind of like how a lot of people sort of fell away, but how brotherhood is really um, sort of, it's, it's not like a legal category, but more a, an ethic or, you know, a feeling. It's a really, really beautiful chapter. But as an entry point chapter, I noticed that it's actually a very, like, easy chapter because it talks about something very human and the idea of being someone's brother or someone's sister and what that means and how, in many ways, maybe we as Muslims have forgotten what that means. And so that I took as a really lovely, like, easy first step in. Because the book itself goes through a lot of different moods and a lot of different tones and even a lot of different intellectual exercises. Some things are really easy, some things are more challenging, and you know, and the, it can go from happy and jubilant and funny to very somber and serious and philosophical. And it just depends on, on the chapter that you happen to be reading. So that one was a really nice sort of human kind of story of love of brotherhood. The second chapter, chapter 25, Burdens of a Generation, was a tribute to Dr. Hassan Hattout, who was the elder brother of Dr. Mayor Hattout. And they were both very instrumental in founding the Islamic Center of Southern California and the whole Muslim community here in LA. And, um, you know, the Hattouts go way back with the Abul Fuddles. So, you know, Dr. Hattout was one of um, the professor's father's best friends from the time they were like children. So, um, there's a very long history, and actually Dr. Hassan Hadhout was the doctor that delivered the professor back in Kuwait as a baby. So they go way back to the beginning. Um, but he was someone, and in this chapter, you know, this was written after Dr. Hassan passed away, and it was intended as a tribute. Um, but it, it was much more than that. Um, it was really um, kind of a, an example of how someone within that Islamic ethic honors an elder, someone who, you know, he admired and loved, um, and, you know, loved because of his, many of his Islamic qualities. Um, so I found, you know, that it was just a beautiful um, way to understand how should we honor people that we love with dignity and respect. And it was, there were a lot of important lessons there. Then um, chapter three was, maybe um, I lost the date. Chapter three was, um, oh, sorry, number three was chapter 77 called Embracing the Beloved. And it was extremely short, but extremely powerful chapter that was just about a tribute to loving God. And that was amazing. Chapter four or the fourth night was, um, the, the fourth night was chapter 85, which was called The First Admission. And interestingly, this was the last chapter of the whole collection. And I wanted to highlight this chapter in particular because um, it's really an amazing summation of everything that we love and stand for um, with regard to our religion and, and what we are doing here at Asuli. I mean, a lot of times people ask, like, what is Asuli? What does Asuli mean? What is the Asuli Institute? Um, what are you guys trying to do or what are you trying to teach? What do you hope for as um, Muslims or for Muslims in the future? And I think to answer all of those questions, this book sums it up. So I would highly recommend chapter 85, The First Admission. The fifth revealing was chapter 18 called On Knowledge. And this was pretty much like a treatise on where we as Muslims have failed the whole concept of knowledge. And 
you know, how do we honor knowledge in our day and age? Um, the sixth chapter was chap chapter 67 called Searching for the House of God. And this was a searing reflection on whether our mosques are actually houses of God or maybe something else. It raises some really important questions about maybe how we should be thinking about what our mosques should be like maybe after the pandemic. Then the seventh night was chapter 76, Divine Threads, and this was a haunting and powerful piece about struggling with darkness and when you feel like you just need God to come in and you're just struggling and you can't break out of it. Um, chapter um, 81 was the eighth night read, Thieves of the Dark, and this was an amazing chapter about what we as Muslims have lost and who stole it from us. It's a very fascinating chapter. And then the chapter that I just shared last night, um, our ninth night, was chapter 58 called The Remembrance. And this was the most long and challenging um, chapter that we've had so far. It's a, it is a difficult chapter, but it's probably the most instructive and most illuminating chapter on what Islamic law actually is, like what Islamic law requires and the weight of responsibility upon you know, people who speak on behalf of Islamic law and speak on behalf of God. And it's a really important um, chapter for anyone who is in that position of power. And it's a little bit of a litmus test too, because it's a difficult chapter with a lot of concepts. And I feel like, you know, if, if I took that chapter to any of the leaders at any of our mosques, I would be like, here, read this. Do you understand it? If you don't understand it, maybe you shouldn't be in charge. <laughs> so that's just my flippant attitude. But it's a really important chapter for us to start appreciating, like the depth and, and richness and sophistication of Islamic law and how we shouldn't feel so free to just represent whatever we think Islamic law is. And there's some really important stories in there. So I, so to close, what was very interesting, I mentioned that you know, tonight is the 10th night, um, and I was worried that you know, with our halakha tonight that I might not have time, um, because I always like to try and do my, my chapter search and, you know, and my write-up before Maghrib. And this session's gonna you know, go up until right before Maghrib. So I was um, thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll, and let me ask, you know, I was thinking, well, let me pray and ask God if, if I can do my flipping with the chapter tonight, like right now. And maybe I can just get a jump on it and, and write it up before the halakha. So I did my Bismillahirrahmanirrahim and my flipping, you know, flipping of the book. And I flipped it open. And subhanAllah, I was shocked with what came out. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you. I, I wrote this because I, I was just so touched. So this is my last chapter. Because again, as I said, I write out everything I want to say in the Holocaust. So this is my last closing paragraph. So it says, it's about 6.30 in the morning as I write this. I'm worried that I will not have time to do the chapter reveal for later today since we are going to have the halakha this afternoon and we're going to try to keep it short. I'm already over with seven pages of notes for my talk. Most talks never go past six pages and that usually takes me about 30 minutes of speaking. I ask God if I can do my flipping for day 10 and if please God, if God would bless it. I begin flipping the book and the pages as usual and recite Al-Fatiha and Bismillah several times. I open to the page and it opens with certainty to chapter 28, the search for beauty, the essence of everything. It's a divine sign. I read it and find everything encapsulated in basically two pages. Alhamdulillah, this is a most blessed sign of love and I am so grateful. 
So this is my reveal. I haven't put it on Facebook yet, but it's, um, it's chapter, um, what did I say? 28, The Search for Beauty. And it talks about that beautiful hadith, God is beautiful and God loves all things that are beautiful. And how that's really the premise of this book, that it's the premise of you know, our understanding of this faith and everything that we do. And it's one of those really important measures by which you understand if something is truly Islamic or not. You know, is it beautiful? Because when you are searching for the divine, you are searching for God. And if you're on the path of the divine, then you're on the path of beauty. So by definition, nothing that's ugly can be a route to God or represent God in any way. So that's it. So that's, that's our first 10 nights of chapters. And if you haven't joined, I feel free to jump on at any time. It's never too late and it'll be up anyway. Um, but hopefully, um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what other chapters come between now and the end of Ramadan. So that's all I want to say. So thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to turn it over. Oh, no, actually, what we decided is because um, we started this um, before Asr hit. So we're going to take a really quick break now to pray Asr, and then we'll come back, and then we will finish, inshallah, at 7. So that's, that's the plan, okay? So we'll be back in just a little bit, inshallah. So um, I just want to say one last thing before um, we transition over to the professor. Um, so um, I want, first I wanted to thank, um, there are a lot of people who have donated, especially during Ramadan. And I just wanted to apologize because I have not been very good about sending acknowledgement or you know, thank you letters as I should. Um, but I just um, bought a new like donor management software. So I'm going to figure it out so then I can do it with a touch of a button. But it's still going to take me a little bit to figure it out. But I just wanted to say, you know, to give a verbal thank you because it means so much. I, I know when people send money and donate and it, it means so much to us. And to be honest, I haven't really made it a priority to ask people to give, um, especially during, you know, it's going to be Giving Tuesday, this Tuesday and all of that. But I just feel like there's so many more important causes and so many more people that are suffering in the world that, um, you know, we would love to have, you know, funds to develop some intellectual programs and all of that. But there are people who can't even feed themselves or don't have shelter. So, you know, I really encourage even like on my Facebook page for people to donate to orphans. There's a Syrian orphan group um, that we regularly give to and you can find that on my page but but in all cases the thank you anyway we are so grateful for um, all of the donations that people have given and um, you know and may Allah reward and bless you and elevate you and you know and multiply those those blessings especially because it's so hard for people to believe in donating to intellectual causes so that makes you super special already <laughs> so but we're, we're very grateful um, and then the last thing I just want to say about the um, the chapters is the you know these ten chapters that were first revealed. Like if you do nothing, then read these ten chapters. That can totally transform your understanding um, and love for this religion and faith in this religion. And so I really encourage. It's not a hard thing to do. They're not really long chapters, but these are like super, super powered chapters that will, you know, touch your heart in, in surprising ways. So just wanted to say, um, you know, that's um, worth worth investing your, your Ramadan time in. And except for that last chapter, 58, that one really, you need to like, be careful of fasting brain. That's hard. 
it's hard for a normal brain. So fasting brain is going to have some difficulty, special difficulty with it. But the other ones are gentle and, and they're definitely powerful and motivating. So that's it. And I think the professor is going to come now. So we're just going to shift the cameras and everything a little bit and then we'll get started again. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Surah Al-Fajr. Like the um, like a lot of the sore revealed in Mecca, um, the early sore which prepared the Muslim generation for what will come it is important to understand each surah in its place and the earliest revelation all the surah of the earliest revelation are foundational surah in that they are creating the building blocks for what will follow. They are pre prepping the human being who will be persecuted, who will migrate in the Hijra from Mecca to Medina, who will create a state in Medina that will anchor the Islamic message, which will then uh, extend towards the world. The renewal of the Islam of the earliest prophets, والسلام, the renewal of the faith of Nuh, والسلام, of Adam, والسلام, of the renewal of the faith of the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, who called, who was a Muslim Muslimin, who called this Islam, who called the faith Islam. So it's important to understand that they have a rhythm. These soar have a rhythm that create an epistemological awareness. They create a state of consciousness which is anchoring. And of course, for that generation, they had the Prophet ﷺ with them to, uh, to help that generation create the consciousness that is necessary for the foundation of Islam um, we don't have that great blessing. We don't have the company of the Prophet, a living example with us. And so our relationship with the Quran uh, has to be embedded in a prophetic relationship that we ourselves uh, explore and investigate. And that's harder. 
but at the same time, it's an easier test because imagine if you are born in the age in which the Prophet is with you. Well, the sacrifices that are you are asked to make at the time of the Prophet for the companions, for the Sahaba, their commitment had to be total. And if they turned away from the Prophet, that's an absolute failure. That's a huge test. Often a lot of us, we, we think, well, you know, these people had the Prophet Muhammad with them, and so they were lucky in ways that were not, and they had it. Uh, it, it, it uh, that's a power that we don't have. Well, that's true. But at the same time, they had a test that is very hard because if you fail to respond to the Prophet Muhammad at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, that's a complete failure. Now, of course, that begs the question, if we were born at that time, if we were there at that time, would we have responded to the Prophet Muhammad? I mean, it's easy for us to sit here today and say, oh, yes, of course, we would have. But when you keep in mind the type of sacrifices that these people had to make, and you think of your relationship to material things, would you have made the sacrifice? Would you have failed in the test? Now, since we don't have the Prophet with us, understanding the dynamic of this earlier sur, we must always ask ourselves what type of sacrifice they are demanding of us. Because failing to ask that question or understand that question is something that you will have to confront Allah with. Now, why do I, I underscore this? Because Surah Al-Fajr um, is said to have been revealed right before Surah Al-Buruj. And Surah Al-Fajr presents, as we will talk about, presents Muslims, the, these early Muslims, as it's forming their building blocks, their consciousness. Uh, it is talking to them about basic ethical principles that require a relationship with material wealth, basically alerting these earlier Muslims. And remember, this is before the, the great persecution. This is before, we're not sure if it was after Khadija died or before Khadija died, but most likely it was before Khadija died. Most likely Khadija was alive at the time. Um, it is preparing Muslims, put yourself in the position of these earlier Muslims, it is preparing them for what will come, what they don't know will come. 
And what will come is that there's going to be an economic boycott by Mecca. There's going to be huge financial sacrifices. Surah Al-Buruj, which we, inshallah, will come. We, we haven't done it tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj yet. Is preparing Muslims for physical, physical persecution and torture. It is sort of raising, alerting Muslims that part of the persecution, which will will ha- in fact unfold, it will trans, it will transpire, that these earliest Muslims not only are going to be persecuted financially and economically, not only will there will there be huge economic sacrifices, but then there will also be physical persecution, actual physical infliction of physical pain. And then ultimately these sore are prepping that generation that is going to be asked by God to migrate from their homeland in Mecca to to Medina. Now, for Muslims after the first generations, understanding that these sawar are addressing your attitude towards life on this earth, your earthly life, and challenging you to have a worldview that is anchored in the Quran is critical. In this context, the vast majority of authorities agreed that Surah Al-Fajr was uh, revealed in Mecca, that it was among the earliest sores, that it was revealed before Al-Buruj. Um, interestingly enough, there is um, uh, um, uh, I think it was Ali ibn Abi Talha was the only authority that I found that said that Surat Al-Fajr was revealed in Medina, not in Mecca. But that opinion the vast majority had rejected. Um, which, But it's interesting because it also tells you that uh, like everything in the Islamic tradition, there is a diversity of opinions. It, it, it is never just simply... Um, dogmatically black or white but anyway i believe it's 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 a meccan surah and i believe it's a, it's one of the earliest gener- uh, surah um and also because of its style stylistically it it has the earmark of these meccan surah that created the muslim consciousness Structurally, the surah has a cohesiveness and an emotional impact um, that is important to understand. It starts out 
like a lot of Meccan Surah, it starts out by calling upon people to reflect. And it starts out with a certain gentleness, a certain um, um, tranquility, an aura of um, uh, connecting you in many ways with nature, with the, with the, the physical laws of creation. So when it starts out, it calls your attention to al-fajr and dawn, shaf'a and witr, we'll talk about that, wal-layl is a yes, and the flow of the night, alerting you to some of the physical laws that are the laws of creation and God. And then, the challenge of reflection. Like a lot of these sore reminding you of some basic building blocks of nature, then a challenge addressed to those who reason or to those who have an intellect or those who have a conscience or those who have an awareness. So it's like, saying, do you use what Allah gave you? Which in, 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 we know theologically what it r reminds you of using is in the, in the very instrumentality, the very tool that made you Allah for al-ard, that made you the um, inheritors of the earth and the deputies of God on earth and the viceroys of God on earth. In other words, what made you competent to accept that role as, an, as agents on this earth. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll, we'll detail that in a little bit, inshallah. And then it moves on to reminding you of the consequences of failure to reflect and understand. Quite typical of that structural genre, it reminds you of failed nations. So the laws of nature, the laws of history, do you reflect upon nature? What happens for those who fail to reflect? Then history will tell you what happens. The consequences of nations that have no intellect or that didn't use their intellects the way that Allah intended them to use it. And then... From that, it takes you to, from nature to history to a stormy, um, uh, um, a stormy picture, the picture of the transformation to 
this life to the hereafter. And quite, you know, again, within this st structural setting, it, uh, the transformation is uh, the, the, the imagery of entire creation be, being torn down. That this whole artificial creation that, or this artificial reality that you live in, uh, that you fail to understand, then Allah just tears down and, and folds up or that rolls up and you're presented with, a, with the reality of the hereafter. And then the consequences in the hereafter, and then the the final reminder, which again, either in these types of sword, the, the reminder is always either of what it means to be alienated from the divine who is your source, who is in fact the innate reality, the 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 source of everything, or the consequences of what it means to be united with that divinity. So it, it, always these sore either end on the theme of here's what happens to the alienated or on the theme of here's what happens to those who are united with the divine rather than alienated from the divine. So that structure, in fact, if you, if you memorize uh, the shorter surahs, remembering the, 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 the structural elements and surahs um, often helps people memorize it because they know that there will be a call for nature, then the reflection, then a reference to the past and the consequences of history, then the unfolding or the, the, the destruction of reality, the consequences, and the resolution. Okay, so that's the basic structural elements. Now we get into the details. Allah swears in this surah the oath that Allah, the Qasam, that Allah alerts us to. And remember that when Allah uh, swears by some something, all these oaths that Allah takes when 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 uh, uh, when Allah says "uqsim" or "la uqsim," which is again a form of swearing. It is always because Allah wants to alert us to certain things. Allah doesn't swear by something because they are of great significance to Allah. But Allah swears by something because they are of great significance or should be of great significance to us. It is Allah alerting us to the importance of reflection on these elements. There's an, you know... For the there's a theological interesting theological debate. Um, it, 
I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I hesitate a little bit because it's, uh, it's more advanced or a bit more involved. But the, the theological debate is, well, if the Quran was revealed to a people other than the people of Mecca, would Allah have sworn by different things than what Allah swore by? Um, so, for instance, if Allah swears by the night, is it because the people of Mecca understood the significance of the night? Uh, is the element of swearing relative to the culture of revelation or not? Interestingly, if you look, for instance, in Tafsir al-Mataridi, you'll find al-Mataridi is very explicit about this point. Uh, Al-Mataridi says that Allah chooses to swear by certain things because they were great of, uh, of great significance to the Meccans. And he expressly, explicitly says that, for instance, when Allah swears by the moon or by the night, uh, it is because it is of great significance to the people that the Quran was revealed to. Those who did, who did not accept Al-Mataridi's position and the positions of, of that school of thought said, well, if that was true, then it would not have universality and it would not have um, eternality, if you will. It wouldn't be something that we... It, 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 why, would, why would Allah ask us to reflect upon something that was of significance just to the Meccans at the time of the Meccans? It's an interesting debate I mean, I, I, I tend to believe that when Allah swears by something, it's because of great significance to humanity forever. Um, but, I mean, for, for the sake of being accurate and, uh, and honest and so on, uh, especially those of you that are students or in the future want to specialize in these types of studies, uh, you could... Uh, read Tafsir al-Mataridi yourself and but but remember that these things understanding these debates take a great deal of study and a great deal of specialization and don't tread into these debates lightly it's not enough to read a Tafsir and then start pontificating upon this point or that point uh, because these are subtle arguments that developed over centuries, and they're often debates that are very sophisticated and very nuanced. And either you leave these debates alone, or if you engage them, you engage them fairly and justly. Okay, so Allah swears here in Surah Al-Fajr By really five things, if you look at the surah, you'll see that there is five things that Allah swears by before the surah starts engaging with the lesson, if you will. So there is the fajr, there is the 
Layal in Ash. So there is the Faj, the dawn. There is the Layal in Ash, the ten nights. There is the Shaf. We'll talk about Shaf. There is the Witch. And there is the Layl Isaiah and the night. So that's five. So there is the Faj, the dawn, the Layal Ash, the ten nights, and the Shaf. We'll talk about Shaf and the Witch. We'll talk about wit, and then al-layl is a yes, the night as it flows or the night as it advances, and so on. Why these five things? That that's what we will talk about, and then the then the 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 challenge. Do you understand that this is an important oath if you have an intellect? Hijr, as we'll talk about, is intellect. Um, can you use your reason? Can you use your intellect to reflect upon these oaths, alerting us to the failure as witnessed in history, the, the, the human fall, if you will, as witnessed through history, uh, unlike biblical discourses which often limit the, the fall to Adam and Eve. The Quran, there is no dramatic fall that is limited to Adam and Eve, but the, the failure is always a historical failure of past nations that drifted away from the divine and the consequences of, the, of drifting away from the divine. And then the ultimate results as we see in the surah. Okay. So, Al-Fajr. Interestingly, you find a great deal um, about written about why Allah swears by Al-Fajr or the dawn and the significance of that. You will find a broad range an array, if you will, from those that gave Al-Fajr the most literal interpretation that, well, Allah is swearing by the dawn because the dawn is a new day. And so Allah is telling us, listen, reflect upon the fact that Allah created day and night. So Al-Fajr, in many ways, parallels the night as it advances. So Allah is creating these parallels, which we know in other surah, uh, the, the flow of night and day is something that Allah often demands of us that we reflect on. Why we reflect on? Because the intricate balance of the fact that life on earth would not be sustainable. And we understand that in modern science much better than in earlier generations. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that life on earth would not be sustainable, would not exist if it hadn't been for that very intricate balance between sun and moon. We today, we know things like gravity and, the, you know, uh, 
uh, how the earth is protected in this by this bubble that is created by the the relationship between the sun and moon and yes if if it hadn't been for that very intricate balance life wouldn't be sustainable on earth and allah is you know centuries before we we understand modern science is is speaking to even what ancient generations realized um that there is it night that interchange between night and day that balance cannot happen by coincidence that it all points out to the creator okay so this is if you will the most uh, um, straightforward understanding of why Allah refers to Al-Fajr. If you will, Zahiri, that's, that's the literalist. Uh, because Allah refers to, uh, to the night, Allah refers to Al-Fajr, to the, the, the break of the day. From that, you do find a great deal of other discussions. If you take the other side of the spectrum, to just give you an idea of that spectrum, so here's, for instance, what Ijilani um, says about Al-Fajr. والفجر أي وحق انفلاق صبح السعادة المتنفس بأنفاس الرحمانية المتلألئ من سماء العماء وأفق عالم الأعلى اللاهوتي. So if you understand if you understood any of the Arabic, what Jilani is talking about is that the reference to الفجر has is not a reference. To the dawn, the dawn that we know in physical reality, but is a reference to opening the eye, your eyes spiritually. The Allah is saying, for all of you, and this is a very common theme in these types of tafsir, that humanity is blind. You were born with a fitrah, that fitrah could render you seeing, but you blind yourself. You blind yourself by the things we will talk about. When Allah references al-fajr, when Allah talks about dawn, Allah is referencing to that very first moment where you open your eyes and you witness the divine before your death, in your lifetime. So, which, as they say, that it's not necessarily the case that every human being who lives and dies will have a fajr. There are many human beings who will go through life and never experience the dawn because they'll never open their eyes. There will never be a moment for them 
where the divine, the luminous enlightenments of the divine, the beauty of the divine will never open up to them and they will have their eyes closed and remain blind. Now, between this range, between the, the literalist, the Zahiri, and the most symbolic, metaphorical, um, there, there is a great deal of variety. So, for instance, um, some of the interesting discussions that um, in in the in desert Arabs, they used to know, or they 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 have something that they recognize in nature, because we don't live connected to nature anymore. Um, it's something that I I I think is alien to us. That they have something called the Fajr Kazib, a false Fajr, and Al Fajr Sadiq. The real Fajr. And in Fajr Kazib, it doesn't refer to a spiritual state. It refers to actually something in nature. That apparently there is a light that appears um, that in the skies, in the heavens, that give you a sense of a false Fajr. That dawn is here, but it's actually a false light. It's an illusion from the moon. And in books of fiqh, you find these discussions in which they warn people, don't think that Fajr prayer has started. Make sure that you are seeing not Al-Fajr al-Kazim, not the false Fajr, but the real Fajr. So that if you see a light and it's vertical and it, it, it has certain characteristics that they always describe in, in, in books of fiqh, that, that's a false Fajr. So if you're fasting... Uh, don't don't think that uh, this the fashion has come. Now, of course, you know, would we be able uh, have any of us looked at the sky long enough to witness a false fashion from a from a real fashion? I definitely haven't. Um, it it requires a relationship with nature that is, I think, missing for so much of modern human beings. So, you know, you find these discussions in books of Tafsir that when Allah says, وَالْفَجْرِ وَلَيَانِ الْعَشْرِ that Allah is referencing, when even when you look at nature, look long and hard so that you can understand the, di the differences even between a false fajr and a true fajr. Um, really, I mean, really interesting points. So if you look, for instance, in, um, in Tafsir al-Mawardi, uh, he lists four or five different meanings for the word wal-fajr. We don't need to go into each of them because they, 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 these debates are often connected to later points that the Mufassir is trying to make about what the surah means. But it is important to understand that you have that range. From this is a metaphorical reference. Don't understand this literally. To no, it's it's a literal reference, and it's a paralleling between the morning and the night.
Okay. So then, um, I just want to make sure I, I didn't miss, uh, forget anything. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, in that range I was talking about, in that range that I was talking about, you you will have you'll find in in a lot of books of tafsir you'll find a discussion that when Allah says al-fajr, Allah is not necessarily referencing the night, but Allah is actually referencing the first prayer of the day. And that what Allah is swearing by in this, in this, in the, in fajr wa layal al-ash wa shaf'a al-witr are prayers. And that Allah is alerting us to the importance of fajr prayer. That Fajr prayer has a great blessing and power. In fact, in Ihya Ulum al by of course, Bal Ghazali, um, and, and it's, this is not unusual, and also Ibn Qayyim in several of his works, he'll tell you that the blessing of Fajr prayer is such that those who don't perform Fajr prayer will proceed the rest of the day in the company of shayateen, in, in, in the company of, of fitan, in the company of great... Of, of, but that the anchoring point for a Muslim is that first prayer of the day, Fajr prayer. Um, of course, you know, for a modern uh, people, it again strikes our ears because we are so westernized and so colonized. It strikes our ears as odd that that relationship with the balance and the music of the day, that the day starts with Fajr prayer and ends with Isha prayer. Modern human beings though are not synced with the time clock with sacred time, which I've talked about before, in that fashion. Um, and so this often, you know, is a particular prayer so important that Allah would swear by. You will find a great deal written in tafsir about the um, why Allah swears by Fajr in particular and the importance of connecting with Allah in the first prayer of the day. Which is interesting because um, if, you're, if you're like me and you stay up the entire night, Fajr prayer for me personally is often the last prayer of the day. Um, so I, I go to sleep after Fajr. I'm not telling you that's, that's a good thing, probably a bad thing. Um, but yes, I mean, I've often, even every time I recite Surah Al-Fajr and, and, well, Fajr, and it occurs to me, well, that's your last prayer of the day. Um, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. If I stayed up the entire night partying, 
and doing haram, then I would be deeply troubled by that. But since I stay up the entire night not doing haram, alhamdulillah, um, then I, I, you know, I pray that Allah understands and accepts that that's the final offering. And it's a, you know, I say good morning before I sleep to, to Allah. You know, I say my good morning and fajr prayer and then go to sleep. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think we finished the range of, on Al-Fajr. Uh, I get, uh, several people have written me saying, you refer to layers of tafsir can you tell us the source where you find these? Can you give us the source where that's, that lays out these layers? And my answer is that when I speak of layers, I am speaking of reading a great deal of corpus, a great deal of the body of the tafsir nature, integrating it for you and saying, without, you won't find a single source that tells you, here's layer one, here's layer two, here's layer three, here's layer four. There is no such single source. But what there is, is that you read the entire range, you understand where Ibn Kathir comes from, you understand where a Razi comes from, you understand where a Qurtubi comes from, you understand where uh, um, Al-Wahidi comes from, where Al-Matridi comes from, where Al-Amidi, I'm blanking out, what's his name? Al-Mawardi comes from, and so on. And then you, as the teacher, then you integrate this material and you say, here are the different ways that people understood it. And for me, when I say that they don't conflict, I am expressing a personal, my personal school of thought as an usuli. Are there people in the tradition that believe that there is no way you, you can reconcile between understanding al-fajr metaphorically and understanding al-fajr literally? Of course there is. Yes, there are people that are so hard-headed close-minded and say if you either accept al-fajr as me as referring to the dawn or referring to prayer or referring to opening your spiritual eye there is no way that the word can mean these different things at the same time for me no you're wrong it can mean different things different layers of understanding for different people depending on where they are in their in their journey there is no reason that we insist that either it means this or nothing. So what I'm telling these people who write me, understand that what I am giving you, I do so as a teacher who is also transmitting my own school of thought. In other words, my own ishtihad. And my ishtihad is that I to the extent possible, reconcile between the different tafasir, and I weed out 
what I think is clearly erroneous or clearly flawed or without foundation. So yes, you are getting the school of thought of Khalid Abul Fadl. If you don't like that, then don't listen to me. I am not a computer program that regurgitates what is in books. I am an interpretive medium. And for Muslims, especially those who you know write me and say, we want to become, we want to be scholars, can you tell us your thoughts so we can read them ourselves? And then if you want to be a scholar, then understand that you must rely as a scholar in training on interpretive mediums. And you must respect each interpretive medium and give due honor to each interpretive medium. Don't think that an interpretive medium is just like a recorder, that they are just regurgitating what, in other words, that they are simply delivering what you, could, you yourself can deliver. That's, that's not respecting the interpretive medium. Respecting the interpretive medium means I respect the fact that you, it takes great amount of learning for you to convey what you are conveying. You, you are not just a computer program. A lot of times when the tone of these messages that I get, when I, when I don't think that they have the sufficient amount of reference to scholarship, I don't respond. Um, because writing a scholar, there are adapt for writing a scholar. When you ask a scholar for sources, there is an adapt to it. And if you don't understand these adab, then you are so then you're such a beginner. Then you shouldn't even worry about original sources yet. Talabul Ilm has a process and has a methodology and has a system, and it, 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 it you either follow the rules because I when it comes to the process of seeking knowledge. I am stickler about it. You either follow it correctly and you do it right in the right way, right way, or don't even bother. So, just for all these people who, uh, some are people who do have the right adab. I, I respond to them and I, I tell them what I just said. Um, if you're looking for a single book, then perhaps you should think about transforming these halakas into an actual book of tafsir, which Grace has already talked to people about, which in fact presents that integrative effort, which is an effort that I do, um, you know, for, for good or for better or for worse. I mean, I, I'm sure that there are a lot of failures and shortcomings in my juhd, in, in, in the effort that I, uh, that I offer. Um, and I'm sure there will be a lot of things that I've missed and a lot of things, but I'm also sure that there are a lot of things that I, um, that I offer. It's never black and white. Uh, each scholar does what, you know, what they can. And you appreciate what you're grateful for whatever you learn from them. And you hopefully forgive their failures and their shortcomings. Or that's what at least what you should do. Okay. Now we come to <laughs> the the second walayalin ash, the ten nights. Okay. 
So then you again have this broad range of what is Allah referring to when Allah tells us ten nights. Why is there a broad range? Well, it, this has to debate again with the value of what Allah chooses to swear by. Some Mufassirun said, well, listen, if Allah swears by ten nights, it has to be something of significance to the in, so important that it's of significance to the entire Abrahamic tradition. And therefore, Allah is swearing by the ten nights of Moses. That would have significance for the entire Abrahamic tradition. Um, other Mufassirun said, well, it doesn't have to be the Ten Nights of Moses, and, and especially had a problem with the chain of transmission uh, and Isnad uh, for those who said that it's the Ten Nights of Moses. There is a hadith that in which the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said that the ten nights refer to the ten nights of Dhul Hijjah. The, the ten nights um, that end with the feast of sacrifice, with the Nahr, Ayyam al Nahr. But a lot of scholars had trouble with the authenticity of the hadith. And so when you see some people say, well, there's an opinion that it refers to the ten nights of Hajj, which end with the Feast of Sacrifice, and then you find that other scholars said, no, no, it's not necessarily the uh, ten nights of Dhul Hijjah. The reason there is that disagreement is because of the authenticity or lack thereof of the reports. Okay. Others said the reference is um, the ten nights not to the Hijjah necessarily but to the, the first ten nights of the new Islamic year. And that's the the months of Mahram. We know that the the Meccans, the Arabs, sanctified the first months of the year, the months of Mahram, and especially the first night, ten nights, Al Ashr Al Min Mahram. Um, and that these first ten nights were in which the shedding of bloodshed was strictly forbidden. And it was considered a great dishonor to shed blood in the first months of the year, but especially a great, great dishonor to shed blood in the first 10 days of the first months of the year, that that was a practice embraced by Islam from its Arab Meccan context. Sadly, later generation of Muslims after colonialism lost that relationship with the months of Mahram. So you often find among uh, Muslims today, they have no clue that it's a, it's a greater sin to shed 
blood or have enmity or have fights or have arguments or um, uh, have chisam uh, and shigar uh, um, fighting in the months of Mahram. The, and especially the very the first ten days of Mahram, for contemporary Muslims, that connection with the months of Mahram as a sanctified month, I I think for the most part has been lost. Uh, you know, you might find it somewhere in the villages in Egypt or in the villages in some rural areas. It still survives, but we, if we're talking about God's law and God's time and God's space. It is critical that we reclaim that relationship. Part of accepting, and, and this is again for those who like to talk about de decolonialism, if you want to talk about decolonialism, begin with your relationship with space and time. Because unless you, you understand what your face says about space and time, you, you really, your efforts at decolonizing is, is, is a form of just child play. Okay. The, I'm cutting out the opinions that I think are very fringe because again, if you, um, um, even if you look at, um, uh, what's his name, the, the study Quran uh, in the footnote, He'll tell you something, I forget now, but he tells you, you know, oh, there are so many different opinions about the 10 days. Uh, he, the, the, if I remember correctly, studying Quran doesn't go through all of them or, because there's a lot of fringe opinions, but the main opinions that are worth, that are supported um, is that it is the first 10 days of Mahram, is that it is the 10 days of Dhul-Hijjah, is it the 10 days of Moses, Shahra uh, Ashura, and the, the, the final opinion, and perhaps in the opinion of many, the best supported opinion um, uh, that is worth talking about, is that it is the 10 days of Ramadan, meaning the final 10 days of Ramadan, where Laylatul Qadr is reported to be. Now, in my opinion, There is no reason to say it is just one of them. In my opinion, that Allah could be alerting us that the, of the importance of sacred time. That in the same way, when you have a relationship with Al-Fajr, don't think of time as something that human it is owned by human beings, that you that you control time, you can play around with time, you can advance the hour here one time and, and take the hour back another time like we do in the modern age. But understand that even time is owned by God because unless you understand that time comes from God, is owned by God, is the product of God, you will have a very hard time understanding that wealth is also owned by God. Why do we have the attitude towards material things? 
Because we, we forget the role of God in, in, in our existence. If we understood the role of God, then we, we would think from the time we see birth to the time we see death, God is all over it. But if, we, if our relationship to time and history, and history, I want to underscore history, because history as a byproduct of the post-colonial age is thoroughly secular. Today, when we talk about an academic historian, a scholarly historian, it's a historian that leaves God out of the, of, of the analysis. God has no play, no role to play. That's what we are taught in graduate school to respect as a historian. Now, that's a good historian. Any historian that talks about God in analyzing history is considered a bad historian. That's a problem. But it's a bigger, much bigger problem than we can talk about now. But it's a serious problem. Muslims understand. If you want to decolonize, start thinking about historical analysis. Start thinking about our relationship with space and time. Understand why when we, you forego Jerusalem, Al-Aqsa Mosque, why you are forgoing your very soul. Because you are forgoing the idea of sacred space and sacred geography. Why is it that the companions felt compelled to bring Jerusalem under the fold of Islam? So I've actually here, like uh, uh, the, 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 the foul human being, Yusuf Zidane, will say uh, uh, when the companions fought the Byzantines over Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem, that was an, a war of aggression. This is the point we've reached. Understand that these companions understood because they were trained, they were raised by the Quran by the Prophet and they understood that you don't have a soul unless you control your time and your territory. It is nonsense to have the clock of Big Ben in Mecca overlooking the Kaaba, which you borrowed from the British, and then talk about we are a free people with sovereignty. The project of Neom, the, the selling out of Palestine, started the minute that the Mecca became colonized by un-Islamic time and un-Islamic space. Understand that. Because maybe Allah will bring the, the, the conditions Teach your children, because someday, maybe Allah will change circumstance so that we can reclaim identity. But if you have no understanding, then you have no hope. If we don't have the basics of the discourse itself, then regardless of how circumstances change, we will remain lost. The, the people who rule over the holy sites today 
you know, the, uh, uh, I, I, I've read about how Saudi funded these soap operas that sell out the Palestinian cause in, in the, uh, you know, each Ramadan there are musalsalat, the soap operas, and that Saudi is funding them. The birth of sellouts, of traitors, like Muhammad bin Salman and Muhammad bin Zayed, both of the Saudi and Emirat, didn't happen overnight. It happened because the idea we became alienated from our tradition so much so that we that it was natural that those who would come to rule over over us are far more Western, if you will, or colonial of a colonial mentality than they are of an Islamic mentality. People like Muhammad bin Salman and, and, and Muhammad bin Zayed or Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt or leave alone uh, al-Assad in, in, in Syria. These are people who were never exposed to Islam, who are as alien in their relationship to Islam as the, the prime minister of Israel. Even the prime minister of Israel might, might be a bit closer to Islam because they're at least anchored in the Jewish tradition. And, and being anchored in the Jewish tradition, they have some understanding of what a secret time or sacred territory means. That's why they care so much about their, their, their settlers, their right-wing settlers. Because they understand this is sacred land to us. And if we sell out our sacred land, then we are no more. Can you believe that that is closer to Islam than Muhammad bin Salman and Muhammad bin Zayed who tell you, no, no sacred land. No, as long as we allow Hajj, we can build buildings and do high rises and stand on top of the Kaaba and... You know, that, that image will torture me to the day I die. The image of that foul human being, Muhammad bin Salman, standing on top of the Kaaba. I mean, you, if, if we were really a decolonized people, that would have been enough to cause a revolution. That would have been enough to cause a massive uproar that overthrows Muhammad bin Salman overnight. But of course, you know, we, we, we've, we, the day we sold out Jerusalem, Al-Aqsa Mosque, is the day the Kaaba got stepped on. People have to understand that. And I know that so many of our young generations don't understand any of that. It is entirely consistent for Allah to alert us to the importance of, and, and the common theme of, look, the 10 days of Ashura, the 10 days of Muharram, the 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, and the 10 days of Ramadan. It is a common theme that Allah sanctifies and honors 10 days. Now, sanctifies what happens in these 10 days. 
Is it that the angels come from the high heavens and fill the earth? Yeah, there are a lot of hadiths about things like that, about how the angels come down. None of these hadiths, fortunately or unfortunately, are of the degree of authenticity that I can rely on any of them. A, a lot of these hadiths have enormous problems in, 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 in their transmissions. And so it is best to say Allah honors these 10 days, but in what way, in what metaphysical way, that's ilmullah, that, that's Allah's knowledge and Allah's uh, um, uh, sovereignty. That, that's something that it is better not to meddle in. Now, what does that mean for us practically? Pray more in these 10 days. Fast in these 10 days. Avoid, make an extra effort to avoid any arguments or any fights or any disagreements. If you have bad relations with people, try to fix them in these 10 days. In other words, they are sanctified 10 days, days in which Every good deed is extra blessed. And again, the first 10 days of the Islamic New Year, Muharram, the 10 days of Ashura, the days of Moses, the 10 days of Zulhijjah, and the 10 days of Ramadan, the final 10 days of Ramadan. Not just reading Quran or fasting or prayer, but doing good deeds. Now, I heard, um, unfortunately, just the, the Mufti of Egypt, um, uh, what's his face, Shaw'i uh, Alam. He was on Egyptian radio and Izat Quran Kareem, and he was saying, in the 10 days of Ramadan, uh, you should worship more, but it should not affect your productivity on work, in work. Uh, you should not sacrifice your the productivity at work uh, because of ibadah. Or, and my response is, this is typical, classical, kissing up to dictatorship and authoritarianism and petty capitalism and colonialism. Because if we were decolonized people, in my opinion, the last 10 days of Ramadan, they would be always given off. They, 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 it would be official in every Muslim country. The last 10 days of the Ramadan, the position of the state, don't work these last 10 days so that you, in, in the position at least of the state, is that these are 10 days of worship and good deeds. We would have the last tens of Ramadan as non-work days. We, we wouldn't be like the Mufti of Egypt standing there saying, oh, no, may, you know, don't let it affect your productivity. How are you supposed to do Iqamat al-Layl and then show up to, and, and do your job in a normal way? I mean, we, we, we have become so alienated of, 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 from Islam that we take 10 days off in Christmas but the 10 days of Ramadan, that's haram? What that is, the, you want to be, again, for all these students that keep talking about decolonialism, 
and keep writing me about decolonialism. People, start with the obvious. The obvious. And the first obvious thing is that the reason we don't take the 10 days of Ramadan off and we don't understand the historical practice of, of the, what people used to do in the last 10 days of Ramadan or the 10 days of Dhul Hijjah or the 10 days of Muharram in Islamic history is because of colonialism, because we were educated according to colonial educational programs. So we understand Christmas, we understand Easter, but we have no clue about Muharram or Dhul Hijjah or Ramadan. Even in so-called, in quotes, these Islamic countries like Saudi, because Saudi was never an Islamic country, in my opinion, never. They were always a, a reaction to secularism. And right now, just the reaction had taken the gloves off. But you, you want to see, the, the, as a principle, the state should have the position of telling people the time for bonding with your family, for Silat al-Rahm, the time for visiting your neighbor, the time for taking care of any enmity or acrimony between that might have developed the time for all of that is one of the blessed 10 days that Allah refers to and as a principle we don't want productivity from you economic productivity on the last 10 days of Ramadan as a principle, we, we will take them off and encourage you to do iqama and worship and visit and do good deeds. Instead, we find a country like Egypt today has banned Ramadan and after Ramadan, the, the broadcasting of Quran from mosques. You, you go to Cairo, you will not listen to the Quran being broadcast from minarets anymore. Because that's the, the, the CC secular government and what it does in a country like Egypt. Um, again, to give you just a sense of um, the range and language that a lot of contemporary Muslims are not accustomed to, when a Jilani comments on the 10 days Ijilani says the following, and, and again, for those, uh, the, I don't even know if there's any, uh, of course there's, uh, I can see Rami, uh, Marwa, but I don't know if there's anyone else other than you guys, so. Um, okay, so here's what Ijilani says about Layali Ash. Ash. المقبلة إلى الإدبار والإنمحاء عند انجلاء الفجر اللاهوتي وصبح العماء الذاتي. So if you notice what Jilani is saying, in the same way that Fajr was understood metaphorically as referring to the moment that you open your eyes, Jilani and his school of thought doesn't believe that when Allah says ash, Allah is referring to either the 10 days of Ramadan or Hijjah or Muharram or any or Ashura or any of that. 
But Jelani believes that Allah is referring in 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 the same way that Faj refers to the eye of the mind when it when it becomes enlightened. That when Allah says Walayalin Ash, Allah is referring to the ten physical senses. The ten physical senses. And the fact that the ten physical senses, that the physical senses will often lead human beings astray away from enlightenment. Again, for a lot of contemporary Muslims, that's very alien, but that's very classic of that way. Uh, uh, you know, if you uh, look at Ibn Arabi, for instance, Al-Fajr wal and Ashr, he writes a great deal about it in his Futuhat. Because for, for that school of thought, there, when Allah refers to layal, Allah is actually not referring to a, a, a physical time, but to what leads people astray when instead of seeing with their eyes mind, with their basira, they only see with their physical eyes, they only taste with their mouth and lips, they only hear with their ears they, instead of their hearts. In other words, when you rely on your physical senses and lose sight of the fact that there are realities that you are supposed to reach beyond and without the physical senses. Um, can we take a five-minute break? And, 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 and then I'm going to do Shafa'ul Witr, and then we can stop... Uh, Again, you know, I, I was telling myself last night, oh, inshallah, I'll, I'll finish it all. Um, it's just when you, when, you, when, you, when you think of the information, it goes much faster than when you speak the information. Uh, subhanallah, I mean, it, it, speech is such an inadequate tool. I mean, it, it, what you think... And it's very different than when it comes out of your mouth. It's not as eloquent and it's not as well integrated. You always disappoint yourself when you speak. Okay, just five minutes. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, whoever is there. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak, everyone. And it's the, um, so I don't forget, I just want to say that in, in, in commenting on what Grace said, um, I, I, um, I'm very, I, personally, I'm very grateful to, to anyone who supports the Osuli Institute. Because in, in my view, uh, supporting the Usuli Institute is, inshallah, hopefully, supporting an entire, an entire school of thought, an entire intellectual project, uh, an entire civilizational project. Because the, the importance of ideas and sustaining and preserving ideas uh, 
is the possibility for change and the possibility of energy in the future that acts upon these ideas. And if ideas are lost, that's a loss that you cannot replace uh, or very difficult to, to replace. And especially in an age of the Islamophobia that we see everywhere, rampant, worldwide Islamophobia, an Islamophobia that has invaded the Muslim mind so that Muslims themselves are Islamophobic. I mean, today, it is, subhanAllah, it's amazing. I have completely boycotted, completely boycotted any Egyptian television. I can't stand watching Egyptian television. Why? Because Egyptian television has become rampantly Islamophobic. As a Muslim, if I watch Egyptian television, it offends me to the core. If they want to present the image of a terrorist, it is always someone who is a multahi. Some, if you have a beard, then you're a terrorist. The, if they want to present the image of a terrorist, of, of a murderer, of a bloodthirsty human being, it's always someone that is holding a sibha and going, doing tasbih. So the, the image of a musabbih, the image of a musabbih, instead of being correlated with Allah and Sunnah and peace and tranquility and truth and wisdom, it's become correlated in the mind or at least in, 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 in the medium of Egyptian TV to immediately, to violence and fanaticism and blood. How more Islamophobic can you become? Even Dar al-Ifta in Egypt, when they put out their, their, their images of warning people against uh, uh, ikhwan and fanatics, it's always the image of someone wearing a jalabiya with a beard and holding a sabha. So when you get to the point that even Muslims, so-called Muslims, have become rampantly Islamophobic. And the idea of a Muslim that talks about justice or talks about uh, Jerusalem or even talks about Palestinians is equated with blood and fanaticism and militancy and being a militant and being a, a mu'tadi and atham and a ghasib and, a, and a, uh, then that's the world of ideas because that's the world that our children will grow in. Our, our, the imagery in our children's minds of what is a fanatic and violent and bloodthirsty will be everything associated with their tradition. So when you support in, in an ideal world, if we were, we were in a different thing, something like the Usuli Institute would have an endowment of millions of dollars where it wouldn't be centered around Khalid Abul Fadl. It would, be, it would invite, have the funds to invite the best scholars from around the world, 
the, especially scholars at risk, because there are scholars that write me even from Bosnia who are in serious danger. And, they, and I can't help them because I don't have the funds. I can't say, don't worry, come to the, come be a visiting scholar, be a scholar in residence, scholars in Saudi at risk, scholars in Jordan at risk, scholars in, in, in Morocco, scholars in Mauritania, scholars from countries like Yemen, who their universities have been devastated and destroyed, scholars from Sham, from Syria, scholars from Somalia, Ideally, ideally, something like the Usuli Institute would have endowment of millions of dollars. It would have conferences that would bring scholars from around the world. And Khaled Abu Fadl would be a footnote. Would be, oh, this is the person that had all this learning to, to know who is a scholar because he reads several languages and reading several languages, he has read the, the work of this and that and this. He has read people who've written in, 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 in and especially people who write in, in Arabic or in Persian or, and so on. But it is, it is pathetic. We, we just don't have the, 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 the resources and we don't have the resources because it's Muslims don't, don't give you the tools. And if you say you're not going to go to any government because the, the, the price for taking money from the Emirat, it it, 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 they're very explicit about the price tag that they want. They, they, there's no, no games. We can, make, we can give you everything you want, but as long, here's what you, the, 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 what you have to say in return. Um, of course, I mean, it, it, and you see the results. I mean, you just look around, and when when you see someone who speaks the truth is even banned from even a place like the Islamic Center of Southern California, not just from Zaytuna, not just from Isna or Ikna, but even the Islamic Center, then that's an indication of, of, of the trouble we're in. So those who support the Usuli Institute, in my view, the reward in, and inshallah that this opinion will be the is the correct one and that my ishtahad is correct. In my view, their reward was Allah is enormous. And that Allah will reward them for every support they, 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 they offer. Many folds because they are standing with Al Qabiduna Al Jamr. They are standing with those at a time of of great fitan and great hardship. They are standing with that 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 little voice that still insists on speaking the truth with defying power and rejecting the allures and temptations that power offers. You just look around you. Look at how many, count the number of academics that you are aware of that still insist on speaking the truth about Saudi, speaking the truth about the Emirat, speaking the truth about Israel, speaking the truth about Syria, speaking the truth about Libya, about Yemen, about Egypt, Speaking the truth, speaking the truth about the Trump administration, 
Because Trump, with all his Islamophobia, still has a lot of Muslims who tell you uh, that's part of al-mulk law. So you, we work with Trump and we obey Trump and we follow Trump. May Allah reward you. I mean, I, I, I just... Jazakumullah khair. And Ya Rab, ijma'na bikum fil akhira, Ya Allah. In the hereafter will be our meeting. For all those who support us, I ask that we, we meet in the hereafter. That our reward would be that Allah would hold us all together in Allah's mercy. Okay. الشفع والوتر والفجوة ليالي العفش وليالي العش والشفع والوتر. Now it's fascinating. It's fascinating because the reference to الشفع والوتر fascinated Muslim scholars through the ages. Muslims knew that Shafa linguistically can mean two basic things, two basic elements, two basic units. Shafa could refer to anything that is dual, that is Muthanna. That's number one. Number two, Shafa can refer to anything that appeals to anything else. So when I say Yashfauli, that's someone who speaks on my behalf. So when I say to you, Ishfali inda fulan means go and speak on my behalf with such and such person. So, two basic meanings. It can refer to anything that has a dual nature, zawj, twos, or it can refer to anything that appeals to anything else. So, when Allah says, وَالشَّفْعُ وَالْوَتْرِ Is Allah saying that is Allah swearing by that that appeals to al-watr? What is al-watr? Al-watr is anything that is singular. In fact, could be an odd number. Anything that is not jaws but furadi. Singular, one. So is Allah then referring to the dynamic, if you will, that by the wisdom of those who understand that, you, that your relationship to the one and only, to al-watr, al-wahd al-ahad, Allah, Allah himself, Allah's self, is your existence on this earth is to appeal on behalf of yourself 
to appeal for yourself with the one and only? D d d is that clear? So that's that's if you one way of understanding this is Allah is reminding us who anta tashfa'u liman linafsik who do you appeal for you appeal for yourself with al-watr with the one and only what is the most what is the medium for appeal the the medium for appeal the most most basic element way of of appealing for yourself on behalf of yourself with Allah is a salah is prayer so many of the mufassirun said well, when Allah says was shaf'ul watr Allah is referring to Allah is swearing by the importance of a salah to the one and only Allah is reminding us of the power of appealing of salah in other words on behalf of yourself to the one and only others for variety of linguistic reasons and then you know so we don't go get into ours said well you know linguistically it just doesn't work the grammar wouldn't support that and that's their opinion i mean i'm not it's not necessarily true but rather allah is reminding us in the same way that Allah reminded us of, the, of, of time, the sacred time, if you will. And sacred time, daily time, and annual time. Allah is reminding us of sacred reality. What is this sacred reality? That as Allah says, لَا يَكُونُ مُنَّجْوَى ثَلَاثَةً that there can't be two people talking or three people talking except Allah is their third or their fourth. So when Allah says, Allah is reminding us that there isn't two of you conversing except that Allah is your witr. Allah is your odd company. So if there's two of you talking, Allah is your third. Three of you talking, Allah is your fourth. If you, if, if there, whatever. The with, the one and only, there isn't a conversation going on, an interactment, interacting going on. So when I conduct marriage ceremonies, each, each um, sheikh has their own uh, sard. They, they have their own little thing that they tell people as they're getting married, right? And when you do marriage contracts. And the one that I choose is I always tell people, Allah is your one and only constantly in your company. So when, when if, they, if, if I know that they understand Arabic, I'll tell them Allah is your watr. What I'm telling them is, remember that you are not together ever except Allah is with you. Don't ever have a conversation, don't ever have an interaction forgetting that Allah is your witr. Okay. 
Some said, well, linguistically, no, that doesn't work. And again, why? It would take us really long time if we go into the whys. But if you read enough of the books of Tafsir and especially books of Arabic Quran, you, you they go through, you know, you can't. There isn't a single source that goes through everything. But if you read enough of them, you'll have the entire thing covered. He said, "No, Allah is referring not to a dynamic, but Allah is referring to the to Salah itself, to the nature of Salah. Salah." is always either shaf, either twos in twos, two rak'ahs, two rak'ahs, or one rak'ah. And all prayer is shaf, all prayers, fajr, dhuhr, asr, and isha are shaf prayers. They are muthanna in twos. The one prayer that is wetr, it's in an odd number, not an even number, is, is maghrib. So in the opinion of these scholars, they said, no, Allah is swearing by all the muthanna prayers, all the, um, um, all the dual prayers, in other words, swearing by uh, Subh and Dhuhr and Asr and Aisha, and by Al-Maghrib. And that's the reference to Al-Watr. Still others said, no, Allah is referring to the importance of prayers beyond the five prayers. That once you finish your five prayers, if you want to have a close relationship to Allah, a close relationship where you become among those of duhijr, of those who are who have wisdom, who have the who have true perception, always offer at the end of your prayers two prayers shaf and one prayer witr. So always close your prayers. By after Isha prayers or after whatever your your all the prayers you offer, end the day before Fajr, before Fajr, end the day and after Isha. So after Isha and before Fajr, offer two prayers in a Shafa prayer. The Shafa prayer could be two rakas, could be four rakas, could be six, could be eight, could be whatever. And what prayer is always one more raka that is offered. To Allah, in, in, it's, it's like when you raise your, your finger in prayer, saying, La ilaha anta wahdak. You, you are one and only. So, if you notice here, the range goes from those who say, No, Allah wants you to reflect on the fact that Allah is always with you. Allah is the wet to any shafa. To those who say that Allah is reminding you of the importance of prayer, to those who say that Allah is specifically reminding you of the importance of the 
for Shaf'a prayers, the Subh, the Dhuhr, the Asr, the Asha, and the one what prayer, the Maghrib, to those who said, no, Allah is referring you to the importance of the additional prayer that you offer between Isha and Fajr, the Turaq Ashraf and one what. Now, of course, to add to this, is the perspective of many of the Sufi schools that when it comes to Shaf'a wal Watr, Sufis, if you, are, if you are an advanced student in Sufism, you will be made privy to what they call the secrets of Shaf'a wal Watr. If you're a beginner student, they'll often tell you uh, just pray the extra shaf'a and what me either, depending on your madhab, either three rak'ahs after Isha and before Fajr or two and one rak'ah uh, after Isha and Fajr. But if you're an advanced student, they introduce you to language such as the following. The, the dry mouth, I'm sorry. وَإِنْ مِحَائِهُمَا عَنِ الْبَيْنِ وَالْوَتْرِ أَيْ الْوُجُودِ الْوَحْدَانِ الْمُطْلَقِ الْمُنَزَّهِ عَنِ التَّعَدُّدِ وَالتَّكَثُّرِ مُطْلَقًا فِي ذَاتِهِ So, he's saying here, and why they consider it advanced, Allah's reference to an advanced state of knowledge, is that they tell you that in the same way Al-Fajr is metaphorically referring to the seeing eye, the eye of the soul, not the eye of the physical senses. And the Layal Ashr is a reference to the physical senses, the ten physical senses. Al-Shaf'a wal-Watr refers to the new Shaf'a refers to the new state of reality. where the physical appearance of things start to evaporate before your eyes when you get into a more advanced stage of al-ilm al-rabbani and al-ilm al-nurani and al-ilm al-malakuti that you start seeing reality not as you don't see a chair as a chair and a table as a table and a couch as a couch but the, you start seeing them for what they truly are, illusions. And as illusions, they are nothing but spheres of energy, what in our modern language we call energy, but in what they, at the time, they used to call shadows. So a table is just simply a different shadow that makes a table a table and a chair a chair. Differences in shadows. Today, we call them differences in sound waves of air or energy. And that the only reality is the light of God. So, at a moment of tajalli, when a Sufi has true moments of tajalli, everything evaporates. 
he, a Sufi will see the wall as a shadow, the, the rug as a shadow, the chair as a shadow, the books as shadows, and the light of God will come forth. And the Sufi then says, Oh, my Lord, the only real reality is your light. Everything else is a shadow as an, an, an illusion. And so for a lot of Sufi schools, they pause great deal at the reference to Shafa al Witr. Now, just to give you to give you a sense of the richness of the tradition, if you read in Shia tafsirs, they tell you Shafa is a reference to Ali and Fatima, and Witr is a reference to Muhammad wasalam. Now, you know, of course, in, in Shia tafsirs, a lot of Quranic references they, they take to refer to Ali and to uh, the Prophet. Now, in my view, these are layers of understandings. They're not mutually exclusive understandings. In my view, spending a lot of time trying to rebut one understanding and saying, no, you're wrong. It, 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 it cannot be this. It must be this. It is closing the text that Allah made open. I don't think that Allah was somehow not aware that when Allah chooses a, a, a reference like a shaf'a wal witr that we as human beings, we will be engaged with that linguistic reference in ways that are elusive and indeterminate and expansive. That some of us will understand it as, an, as a reference to the shadows and the, the truth of the light. Some of us will understand it as a reference to uh, the five prayers. Some of us will understand it as a reference to a nafila. That the importance of a nafila. Some of us will understand it to, oh, I forgot one thing. Those who say, uh, um, uh, there's, a, there's a, like Ibn Kathir tells you, for instance, that no, what Shaf'a wal Witr is a reference to the fact that Allah created everything in, in dualities. So, Zawjan, there is male and female, there is dark and light, there is. Uh, 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 um, 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 uh, what do you want? Salt, uh, fresh water, and salt water. Always dualities. And al-wit refers to that the, the, uh, that Allah is one and only. So al-shafa wal-wit is actually a reference to the nature of creation. Creation is always done is created in shufua. Shufua means dualities. While the divine is never a shufu'a, or the divine is just a watr, one and only, munazzah, unlike any other. So, uh, when Allah chose that linguistic reference, I think Allah was engaging us in layers of understanding. I myself, when I, when, when, when I was a, a, a young kid, and um, at one time in my life, it was important for me to understand the Shaf'a wal Witr as Allah reminding me that I should keep up my five prayers. 
And then at a different stage of my life, al Wit referred to me as Allah reminding me of the importance of praying beyond the five prayers. And then at a different stage of life, al Wit, I understood it, it meant something to me when, when, when it transpired the world of shadows and light, the world of shubuhat and haqiqah, the world of mulk and malakut, the, at certain stages of life, it, it meant nothing to me. It was just words. But then I entered the stage in life where, oh my Lord, yes, it is true. Ashraf al-Watr does refer to the shadows and the truth. Layers of meaning. Layers of meaning. If uh, remember that Rashid Rada, and I'll, I'll close with this. Remember that Rashid Rada, his tafsir of the Quran is not is not the tafsir of Rashid Rada himself. It is really the tafsir of Muhammad Abdu. What transpired is that Muhammad Abdu used to give halakat tafsir, and Rashid Rada, as his most gifted student, decided that it's a waste to have these. Halakat al-Tafsir not turned into a book. So he took it upon himself to turn the Halakat into a Tafsir which became known as Tafsir Rashid Rida. But what Rashid Rida himself referred to as Tafsir al-Ustaz al-Imam meaning the Tafsir of Muhammad Abdu the Tafsir of the teacher. And throughout the Tafsir Rashid Rida says وَقَالَ الْأُسْتَاذِ الْإِمَامِ And the, 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 the Ustaz, the, the teacher, said. And then sometimes Rashid Rida will either disagree with his teacher or add something to his teacher and so on. So what I'm saying is, is that I know that there, there are some people who told Grace that they, they, uh, that, uh, that it would be that they want to work on a project to turn this tafsir into an actual written tafsir. And again, there's, that would be a tafsir which, which you would say, okay, and he said such and such, and he said the usefulness of having something like that is that it integrates what is found dispersed in so many books of tafsir as layers of meaning instead of competing meanings. Plus, of course, that it, it it is the product of our historical moment, uh, because we we really the, the we are so lacking in in the field of modern tafsir. We we've we've neglected the Quran, um, or if we approach the Quran, we approach the Quran to prove. And the, the, a lot of the modern approaches to Quran are approaches that want to prove that the Quran has scientific miracles in order to confound the enemies of Islam. In other words, that's a defensive approach. The, the, let us prove the miracles of the Quran to prove that the enemies of Islam are wrong and that this Quran has... That's not my interest. I'm not saying that that, that approach, there's anything wrong with it, but my, my, my purpose is not to confound, it's not to, to uh, 
prove that this book is from God, I take that as an assumption, an assumption of faith. And I work from that point onwards. It is from God. And I don't need to, I'm not going to argue that and I'm not even going to think about, about that because for me, that's a closed matter. And then we go from there to explore its miracles and its beauty and its layers and the, the various ways that it engages the human consciousness and the human intellect in truly remarkable ways. So, inshallah, next halaqa we will start with Wallayli Isaias, um, which is number. No, it's ayah four. Yeah. Yeah, night as a present. Okay, alhamdulillah, and Ramadan Mubarak, everyone. Um, I, I don't know who's on. I just uh, uh, see Rami and Marwa. Uh, how are you, Rami and Marwa? I hope you. I can't hear you, of course. There's no way I can hear you. Inshallah, if Allah wills and we, we are together physically, then I can wear my ears and you can speak into the microphone and then I can hear you. So it's not a lost cause. When it first happened, I, I was like very sad. I thought... Uh, uh, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna hear Quran anymore. I'm not gonna hear Adhan anymore. I'm not gonna hear the voice of any of the people I love anymore. But Alhamdulillah, at least I have that microphone, which people can speak in, and I can still hear the voices. Um, I, the way I hear myself, is very strange. So I often worry about whether I'm pronouncing things in a way that actually makes sense to people because the way I hear them inside of me is it's I'm haven't gotten used to that it's very strange it's very strange hearing yourself without ears um but it's so unique that I I say alhamdulillah for the experience because it's something that I would have never experienced if I didn't lose my hearing so uh, it's very intriguing very intriguing I don't want to wish it on you, but it's it's a lot of fun experiencing it. May Allah protect you. And Amen. So, um, so we stop here. Because um, we wanted to stop at seven. So may, may you have a blessed iftar, inshallah. We want to stop to give you enough time to to prepare for your iftar, get with your family and, and all of that. And uh, inshallah, because we, I've had requests from a lot of people about this, maybe we can organize a special Q&A, uh, &A, a special meeting for questions. During Be Ramadan? Yeah, okay. because, because Sharif says he's been getting a yeah. lot of requests. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'll send an email out and organize it and stuff. Okay. Thank you so much. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much again for, for putting this together. <laughs> it's so, so nice to see you. May Allah bless you and protect you. Yeah. And may Allah bless and protect anyone I can't see. Uh, <laughs> uh,